0: All right, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today as we study the book of Sirach. help us to really understand what the message is here, because this is not the easiest book of uh, this group of wisdom books, but it provides us with a number of things at least to think about. And that is the objective here. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today. We just give you praise and thanksgiving for this opportunity. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you like this uh, book of Surah? And uh, be honest now, how many didn't like it? Well, that's good. I'm glad to see that because (laughs) it's... It is not the easiest book to to understand. And, you know, there can be developed a sort of a love-hate relationship uh, with some of the concepts that are uh, provided here. But it is, to me, the main entree into the whole concept of wisdom. And wisdom is a virtue that is God given to us and something that we should strive for. Now, when we're talking about wisdom here, again, we're not talking about uh, the usual idea of a person who is really sharp, really smart, uh, really clever, etc. We're talking about somebody who lives in accordance with the teachings of Christ and the church. Um, but I don't mean pious, In fact, I kind of dislike uh, somebody who goes around looking like they're constantly pointing to their halo, you know, uh, and saying, Look at me, you know, look at how great I am. Uh, And you have a number of people like that. that There's one person in particular, not in this group, of course, (laughs) that I'm thinking about who. comes to Mass every day, uh, kneels for communion, which is all right, not recommended because somebody might trip over him, uh, but always has two books, no, three books in his hand. One here, a little placard there, and it's like this, you know, just look how holy I am. So, you know, I thought, hmm. No, no. The Lord looks more at the heart, not at what the body is doing. Uh, And I don't mean to belittle this individual, because no doubt he is very sincere. But the point is that wisdom comes from inside, not so much what you do on the outside. It's what is inside and how you express it through the outside. Right? So keep that in mind. And there's a few other things. And I'd like to uh, read a few things from a couple of the books that I have up here. They're not real long, but they'll help give you an understanding of what real uh, wisdom is all about. And this particular book. And by the way, before we uh, get into this, Anybody have a problem in finding Sirach in their Bible? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Now, you might look for it under the title of Ecclesiasticus, C-U-S on the end, as opposed, as opposed to Ecclesiastes, which is the other name of Kohelo. All right. And the difference is, one is from the Hebrew, one is from the Greek. No difference in content. It's just the title. And then, to make it a little more confusing, in fact, I just learned this this morning, that some Bibles are listing it as Ben Sirah, S-I-R-A, all right? That, again, is the name of the author rather than the name of the book. But that's okay, because Sirach is a derivative of the name of the author as well. Except Sirach is Greek, rather than Sira, which is Hebrew. Wow, ah, is that clear? <laughs> Alright, well, nothing like being confused, you know. I want to read just a little bit here, to have you get an understanding from another viewpoint. It says, in Sirach, wisdom is totally a gift of God. Like most virtues, it is a gift of God, eternal and preexistent to creation. And we'll see that as we go along, and we'll see it more so in the book of wisdom, which we'll start in two weeks. Um, Eternal and pre-existent to creation associated with God as king. God is king, alright? And the idea of king, kingship didn't start within the Jewish society until the monarchy after David and the succeeding kings that went from David down to the Babylonian exile. But the monarchy actually failed in what it was trying to do, uh, and that was to make Judaism and Israel uh, comparable to the surrounding nations, Um, and yet it was because of the sinfulness of those kings that followed David and Solomon It never really developed as it should have and died out with the Babylonian exile. All right, let's go on. So it is associated with God as king who exercised domain in Jerusalem. The center of Jesus, I'm sorry, the center of God's activity was Jerusalem. All right. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, is described as answering all human needs. Well, you know, got to take that a little bit with a grain of salt. All human needs, glory and splendor, a happy end, peace and perfect health, inebriating men with her fruits stored in her granaries. Got the word "her" in there? until finally wisdom and law are identified outright. While Sirach is therefore preoccupied with the traditions of Israel, he is also, see, the writer, Sirach, the writer, is therefore preoccupied with the traditions of Israel. He is also oriented to the practical according to the law of wisdom. And I won't go on, but you see, the importance to the writer of the gift of wisdom and how it relates to God himself. I want to read another section from this book here. It says, The author, a sage who lived in Jerusalem, was thoroughly imbued with love for the law, the Torah, the priesthood, that existed in the 2nd century B.C., the temple and divine worship. As a wise and experienced observer of life, he has addressed himself to his contemporaries with a motive of helping them to maintain religious uh, faith and integrity through the study of the holy books and through tradition. Uh, That's what got him in trouble you've got to remember what's going on at the same time. This is the second century B.C. when this was written, early part. We don't have a specific date, but somewhere between the 200 and 175 year B.C. Okay. What was going on at that time is that Israel had been overrun by the Greek Empire and was conquered, and was run by the Seleucid kings. That is, when Alexander the Great died, the kingdom, the Greek empire, sort of broke up into 10 different little kingdoms. Uh, The northern part, or that which remained in uh, Asia, South Asia, and a little bit of Europe, uh, was called the Seleucid Kings, five of them, and the other five were across North Africa. Those were the Ptolemies. All right. You had Antiochus the Fourth was the one that tried to force Hellenism, that is the Greek culture, onto the Jewish people and forbid them to do a number of their ritual practices. So you had a lot of problems facing the Jewish people at this time, made worse by the fact that many of the Jewish leaders were beginning to accept the Hellenistic ideas because they were a little uh, looser, uh, a little more promiscuous, uh, but also they had a lot of fanfare and dignity and they enjoyed a, a lot of privileges. So there was good and bad among all of this going on. And so, the whole idea of the writer is to try to hold the people down to the the traditional old-fashioned Jewish concepts and rules and laws, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what you're facing when you read this book, and you have to kind of remember that because it only makes sense when you read how strict he seems to be, and yet there's a lot of good, there's also a lot of things that uh, Jesus also tried to change. Now, the problem with reading Sirach is there's a heck of a lot of detail. I think you would all agree with that. Almost too much detail, and you get lost in it. Well, the secret of reading this book is go over it quickly, don't get lost in the detail, but summarize the chapters uh, with a few words. And that's what we're going to do this morning to show you how, so that when you read the second half, you're going to be able to pick it up a little quicker, I believe, I hope. Yes, uh, Julie just asked about the concept of the fear of the Lord. All right. Uh, well, and it's mentioned very often in this book. The fear of the Lord. All right. What what Sirach means by the fear of the Lord is strict, is strict as a strict adherence to the laws of the Torah. And it doesn't mean fear in trembling uh, or, uh, you know, fear like ghosts or something of that kind. It means really fear of offending the Lord. But uh, along with that is their idea of fear of the Lord or fear of the king is that his retribution or his comeback if you do something wrong would be or could be disastrous. In other words, the fear of the Lord in this original concept really has no love with it. It is strictly fear out of offending but fear also of what the retribution might be if you do. Now, I don't know if that will help you any but you see, It wasn't until much later that the whole idea of love and God being a loving person developed. And of course, that was then uh, brought in very strongly by Christ himself later on. But that was, you know, almost 200 years later. Yeah. Um, The whole idea of love within the Jewish concept of the Jewish life and culture uh was a lot different than it is today. Did you have a question? Sometimes when I'm reading Fear of the Lord, instead of fear I think respect. And it kind of makes it a little bit easier to see. Because we have a different conversation. Yes. And that is what fear of the Lord eventually led to was a fear of offending the Lord. In other words, reverence or revere rather than fear. But it started out strictly as fear and trembling. Yes? Yeah, I I think uh, the way I put it is uh, fear of of offending the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, yes. But that's not the way it started out. You see, it started out with fear of being zapped. Uh, in some strong way, but gradually, and of course the concept that we look at and the meaning that we put to it today is, uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of love, love in both directions, his love for us and our love for him, but that's not the way it started out, and that's kind of the way Sirach is presenting it here. Uh and a number of other things that he is practically demanding in the first 24 chapters uh, adheres to the same concept of you do this or you're going to get that in some strong way. All right. (laughs) Let me talk a little bit about His developing this, and you can understand why it wasn't accepted in its original form, written in Hebrew, because of the Hellenistic cultures and the uh, temple leaders. Uh, Sirach was a Sadducee who fostered uh, and encouraged uh, the priesthood as the social and legal authority throughout Jerusalem, and throughout uh, Israel in general. And the hierarchy of the Jewish people at that time uh, didn't like that idea. Uh, They wanted to embrace a lot of the Hellenistic and uh, the more uh, easier ways of of worshiping and some of the more promiscuous ways of the Greek culture. <clears throat> Greek culture, if you recall, was very advanced in many ways, but also there was no uh, moral restrictions within it. And, of course, that's what some of these people really wanted was a looser moral uh, fiber okay so it was not accepted and it sort of died out in its circulation until you know 60 or so years later when somebody picked it up and it was found by Sirox's grandson in Africa where there was a growing Jewish population around the city of Alexandria. And that is where the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures actually started and was fostered. And when this grandson realized that the book that his grandfather wrote in Hebrew had a lot of important things to say, he decided to translate it into Greek which he did, and it became very popular so that when the Septuagint version, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, was developed somewheres around uh, the middle to the late part of the second century, uh, this book was then included along with the Book of Wisdom, which has a similar background. Okay. Yeah. However, the Jewish people who were uh, pretty much dominated by the Pharisee party, who did not want this kind of uh, book in there because of its restrictions, uh, was never accepted into the Hebrew version of the scriptures. So that is why Sirach and Wisdom is not in the Hebrew uh, canon of the Old Testament, and that is the same one now that was used, uh, by Martin Luther when he started to, when he broke away from the Catholic Church and started to change things and eliminate a lot of the things that were typically Catholic. As I've said before, the Greek version was used exclusively <clears throat> in the early days of the Christian church. And it was also used as the basis for the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Latin by uh, Saint Jerome in the fourth century. And it was the only version of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament used by Christians up until the Protestant Reformation. And that is when then it separated. So for those of you who have a Bible that does not have Sirach or Ecclesiasticus in it, you have a Protestant Bible. Yes, Julie. Interesting that you say, you know, some are left out. Is there anything in the Catholic Bible that was left out that's maybe in a different Bible. No. No. The New Testament is the same in everyone's Bible. Obviously, the Jewish people don't use the New Testament. And they don't even call their Bible, uh, you know, the Old Testament, the Bible. Except that that is kind of changing now with the the, uh, Reform and, and, uh, you know, some of the more modern Jewish people. Okay. Similar question. The Jews who converted to Christianity, then they abandoned their old Bible and adopted the Greek Bible? In most cases, yes. Because they were primarily from locations outside of Israel. Now, I am talking about those Jews in Israel. Uh, well, you probably had some of each. Yeah. Those who. Uh, you know, see, the Bibles weren't as as, uh, common in possession as they are today. Very few people had them. So, copies of uh, that which was in Jerusalem and being used in the temple or synagogues in Israel was probably still the Hebrew and remained that way forever. That sort of answer your question. Now you got me off and I lost track of where I was. (laughs) Oh well. That's that's the way life goes. Yeah. Alright. Well, I don't want to belabor that because I did write a paper on that earlier and there's still copies I think back there if you you, uh, didn't get one. Alright. Any other questions? Alright. What I'd like to do is to go on to showing you how, if you kind of summarize each chapter into a few words, and then step back and look at what do you have here. Now, the foreword, before chapter 1, there is a foreword in there. That is really not part of the Bible. That is Jewish history, and it's there because of its historical content relative to this book. Like I just said a few minutes ago, it was written in the early part of the second century B.C., but not accepted uh, because of its content and because of the author's association with the Sanhedrin. He was a Sadducee. And the Pharisees were in power. They didn't like what he had to say, so they didn't accept it. But when it got to North Africa and the Greek-speaking Jews there found it, uh, the grandson of the author translated it into Greek, and it was then made rather popular and accepted by the Greek-speaking Jews or the Greek-speaking converts, and it got into the, uh, Septuagint version of the <clears throat> Old Testament, the Greek version, that is. But it's in here solely for its historical content, alright, and to explain, uh, a little bit of why the early, uh, version, the Hebrew version was not accepted. In the the forward, it says, So my grandfather Jesus. Jesus was a common name at that time, long before Christ himself was born. Yeah. There was another Jesus earlier, but not the same one. who tried to develop some kind of a following. I don't remember all the details. It is mentioned in one of the Gospels. Uh, but he was martyred, I think it was in St. John's Gospel, somewheres around the crucifixion um, chapter, but I'm not certain of that. <clears throat> okay. Chapter one develops uh, rather a, a strong teaching on the fear of the Lord concept, extolling the virtues of patience and self-control, but it is also written from a point of view of strict Jewish uh, background, and it is a little overdone, you might say, uh, with the idea of fear. But you got to remember, when it was written, that was early 2nd century B.C., uh, when the idea of fear before the king or fear before God himself uh, was just that, fear. Now, if you go back in the book of Exodus, when Moses had, remember Moses the first time he got the Ten Commandments, and he came down uh, the mountain and heard all the the music and the joy and so forth, the merriment that was going on, and it was they were dancing around the molten calf and that kind of thing, the golden calf, and he threw the uh, Ten Commandments at them, and they smashed them all over and so forth and so on, and then. Uh, you know, the people sort of repented and said they were going to repent, etc. And so God calls him back up to the mountain. The Poor guy, you know, climbing up and back, and he was like 80 years old at that time, so he was no spring chicken. Uh, when he, When he was called up to the top of the mountain, you had smoke and fire and hail and lightning and all of that, it made the people so fearful. Uh, the, and, you know, if there were trumpets blasting away, etc It made the people so fearful that when he came down and explained what God had told him and gave him the, the carbon copy, you know, the Xerox copy of the Ten Commandments, uh, They said, Yeah, okay, we'll do whatever you say and whatever he said, but we don't want to, you know, we don't want to get mixed up in talking to him personally. Okay? That's where the idea of fear came from. Fear in connection with the Lord. And that was carried down from generation to generation. And that, even after the idea of the monarchy, Started with Saul as sort of a uh, not a very good beginning, but then David brought it into David and Solomon, brought the monarchy into the golden uh, age of Judaism, which didn't last very long 80 years or so. Uh, but the idea of the king took, was taken from the same idea of God on this mountain and fear of the king which they then you know thought about the king the pharaoh in Egypt during all of that time and the power he had and the way he treated people that he didn't like etc etc fear was really just that fear and that's where it all kind of came from but over a period of time that mellowed through the teachings of some of the prophets and a number of, of others. It mellowed into a development of love of God and fear of offending him. But that really was consummated uh, through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Chapter 2, Serving God in Times of Trial. All right. And this is... Uh, where I bet your mother, like my mother, said whenever we, as children, ran into a little problem, and we run to mother, and or we got sick, you know, had a little sore throat or whatever, and mother would say, "Well, just offer it up." That's not what we wanted to hear. We wanted sympathy, but mother said, "Oh, just offer it up. It's not that serious." Yeah. Well. Ben Sirach had some of the same idea. Just offer it up. Okay. Chapters 3 and 4 really are can be summarized as family piety or filial piety. And keeping the commandments will atone for sin. Keeping the commandments will atone for sin. Well, that's true even, even in today. But then again, you got to be a little careful with some of that. Verse 11 begins the her verses. That is the personification of wisdom as if she was a real person. And I'll get into that a little later, and we'll see a great deal more of that next uh, when we get into the Book of Wisdom. And charity towards others is also a main uh, theme or topic of chapters 3 and 4. When we get into uh, 5 and 6, the wealth of the wicked is a false security. Here again, Ben Sirach was up against a lot of the leaders of the temple because they were the wealthy. That's how you got there. Remember, their concept was that the wealth were being uh, rewarded for their greatness, their goodness, etc by God, and the poor were being punished for their sins. that concept held and it still was in vogue even down to the time of Christ. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes when we get to chapter 12. <clears throat> but the wealth of the wicked. In other words, how many of you have seen, maybe on television or some other location, where you run into a famous person, and famous for whatever reason, I'm not too concerned with that, but you smile and you feel that, oh, you are in in some great aura here, and oh, everybody is so pleased to see this person when you step back and think of who that person was and what he or she did uh, when they were off stage or whatever, uh, you know, it begins to lose its glamour. Uh, Well, uh, you know, I'm not one to run up to a famous person and say hello and shake hands and just be so thrilled because I shook the hands of some person who was well-known. Uh, now, that that to me is not that important. Okay. And I think, you know, the counter to that is uh, Chapter 7, uh, several practical, well, I mean, uh, Chapter 8, Prudence in Social Relations. Okay. In other words, be careful in whom you relate with or relate to um, because it might come back to bite you. Chapters 9 and, and 11. Prudence and reserve in dealing with women. Ooh. Ooh. No wonder they didn't like that, you know. And moderation in dealing with others of all kinds. All right. Unfortunately, I could see where this book would not appeal to a lot of women because it really comes down strong on what a good woman should be. And it kind of goes a little overboard, I think. Mm -hmm. Chapter 12. Here's one that I really feel that we need to talk about here. Benevolence or kindness is to be given only to those who are recognized as deserving. Well, that is is not the Christian way. Okay, but let's go through it just to see what he's saying here. If you do good, know for whom you are doing it. Well, I don't know about that. And your kindness will have its effect. He's not very clear on that. But Do good to the just man and reward will be yours. Not necessarily. If not from him, from the Lord. No good comes to him who gives comfort to the wicked nor is it an act of mercy that he does. And the next one is where we really have a problem here. Give to the good man and refuse the sinner. Refresh the downtrodden. Give nothing to the proud man. No arms for combat should be given to him, lest he use them against yourself. Well, I think the politicians should read that one because uh, we have violated that as a country many times recently. With twofold evil you will meet for every good deed you do for him. The Most High himself hates sinners. No, absolutely not. He may hate the sin, but not the sinner. that's right. yeah I'll get to that in a minute. Anna. In, in our prosperity we cannot know our friends. well that's true uh, because if, if you you want a big jackpot boy friends would come out of the woodwork that you totally forgot it says when a man is successful, even his enemy is friendly. In adversity, even his friend disappears. Well, that's true, too, in many ways. How many of... Well, no, I won't go into that. Never trust your enemy, for his wickedness is like corrosion in bronze. Even though he acts humbly and peaceably... Well, I'm not going to belittle it. You get the idea. No, Christ changed that entirely. The whole idea of love cannot be discriminatory. Now, I've heard people say, well, why feed people or why give money to people who are begging? Well, that might seem like a waste at times, but then again, you don't know the circumstances. There is a—I forget just which, where it is. I—I I highlighted it here, but I don't want to go through the whole book to find it. But it says something about—I um, wish I could because the words are. Uh, Well, I, I, I can't find the particular. I highlighted it, but nevertheless, well, it it says something about uh, if a man steals something minor and uses it to make money so that he can feed his family. It will not be uh, held against him. Uh, But he is still required to uh, pay the penalty. And if you think about it, the whole premise of the book Les Miserables or the stage version, that is what it is based on. Jean Valjean stole the loaf of bread to feed his family and was caught... Well, it might be, maybe it's Proverbs, rather than this one. Anyways, uh, he made, uh, you know, he, he stole this loaf of bread, broke a window and stole the loaf of bread, To to feed his family, and he was caught and imprisoned uh, for 19 19 years, too. Can you imagine for that much? Uh, But that wasn't enough for Jovert. Jovert felt he still needed to pay uh, the penalty, the full time period of his sentence, because he was let off uh, sort of on a probation. And the whole idea of this play is you have this man who, yeah, he did something wrong, but he did it for a good reason. And in the long run, he did a lot of good for society. But on the other hand, you had uh, Jovert, who was representing the law and felt that this man didn't pay. And regardless of the good that he did, it never made up for the sentence that he was originally given. And you have sort of this dichotomy here of the good and the bad going head to head. Well, you probably know the answer of how that turned out. But it was interesting because the words fit that uh, uh, perfectly. <clears throat> But again, this whole idea of love was brought to a head, you might say, with Jesus Christ trying to explain to the people of his time and to the rest of the world forever that God loves every one of us, but he doesn't like a lot of the things that we do. And that there is a requirement of compensation in repentance. All right. I think there's another place in here that says that. uh, Well, we'll get to it in a few minutes. Chapter 13 is much like Chapter 12, but certainly not condoned by uh, Christian standards today. However, it does have some redeeming factors. All right. Chapter 14: Control of the Tongue and the Joy of a Good Conscience. Preparing for Death. Now, if you get to Chapter 14. you'll see that the idea of, and this is another one of the reasons why this book was not accepted by the Jewish people in Israel at the time it was written, is because there is no understanding of life after death. Throughout this book, Sirach adhered to the traditional understanding and belief Of the Jewish people which said that death ended everything that was part of the under their interpretation of the Torah at that time that death ended everything and everything that you have accomplished up to the point of death uh, will be forgotten and all of your possessions will be given to somebody else well Of course, that was changed by Christ who talked about life after death and that there was more to it than just what we understand as life on earth. And that at some point in time, our bodies will be resurrected in the same way that Jesus Christ's body was resurrected. And that we will uh, begin uh, again be put on on earth, not in the way of reincarnation, but this will be something entirely different and hopefully much better. Chapter 15, again, uh, wisdom, fear of the Lord is like a dutiful mother. And here the whole idea of motherhood and the uh, development of youngsters or pe- young people by a strong and helpful but not necessarily uh, understanding or a loving mother that's when like i said when i had a big problem or my brother and sisters had a problem of some kind and it wasn't <laughs> that significant mother would just say offer it up well uh, That was not what we wanted to hear, you know. We wanted a a little pat on the back or a pat on the head and some sympathy. But Mother was not in the mood. Um, And she knew well. She was a loving mother, I have to admit. Uh, I was very blessed with a very loving mother. But at times, um, you would never know it. She knew She knew when to withhold and when to give. Uh, Tough love, yes. God's plan for mankind. uh, The wisdom in man's choosing to follow the commandments. Well, we have to follow the commandments, but there can be a different interpretation uh, today than there was. Uh, Two or three or four thousand years ago. Chapter 16 and 17. One obedient child is worth more than a dozen disobedient. Well, yes, I guess that's true. Uh, God judges and punishes all men according to their deeds. Yes, punishment, you know, is necessary. What bothers me is when you see uh, some people, particularly in church, let their kids just run wild. And uh, you ever notice that woman that's in the the mass during the the week with the two little kids? Oh, boy. It's uh, sometimes distracting, isn't it? Uh, But she tries to keep them in, in order, but... It's it's a job. All right. <clears throat> All right. Chapters 18 and 19. Several subjects in the line with obeying the commandments. Divine mercy, divine mercy and power, necessity of prudence and self-control, and the proper use of and manners in speaking. Amen. See, this guy tried to cover, I think, every single aspect of life. And that gets to be a little much. How And and I think the way you need to approach this book is to understand in general what is there. And then when you have a specific need or a specific problem, You can go to this and get some idea of direction, or you may get an opposite opinion. And that is where prayer comes in. You cannot really resolve your problems by yourself. Prayer should be part of your activity. Even if it's, Lord, help me through this mess or, you know, help me do this little small item or project or job or whatever it is. But it is the Lord who will really help. And it really is a comfort once you have accomplished something knowing that the Lord did help you. Chapters 22 and 23. Laziness and fooliness uh And several subjects related to the ungodly. Um, Chapter 24 is the one I really want to get into. So, if you'll go to chapter 24. sings her own praises. Now, what the heck does that mean? Okay, well it says in this chapter wisdom speaks in the first person describing her origin her dwelling place in Israel and the reward she gives her followers as in Proverb 8 Wisdom is described as a being who comes from God and is distinct from him. While we do not say with certainty that this description applies to a personal being, it does foreshadow the beautiful doctrine of the word of God later developed in St. John's Gospel. In the liturgy, this chapter is applied to the Blessed Virgin because of her constant and intimate association with Christ in the Incarnation. Okay. All right. Now, this whole idea of wisdom in the female description, we'll get more into that in the Book of Wisdom later, but a lot of people have had trouble reading this and accepting this, particularly the Jewish people, uh, because it talks about the importance of wisdom in the female gender. Remember, God transcends all gender, male, female, and the in between. Um, So, you cannot say that this is not really God, in the form of either Christ, prefigured, or I prefer to look at it as the Holy Spirit. I think if you just seem to put in your mind that this is the Holy Spirit, uh, when you get into chapter 9 of the Book of Wisdom, you'll see a much greater description, and I think it'll fit a lot more. So as you're reading forward... And you come to this whole idea of wisdom in the female gender description. Think of it as the Holy Spirit. And again, think of God as transcending all gender. Let's start over again. Wisdom sings her own praises. Before her own people she proclaims her glory. In the assembly of the Most High, she opens her mouth. In the presence of his host, she declares her work. From the mouth of the Most High, I came forth, she says, and mist-like covered the earth. Mist-like covered the earth. In the highest heavens did I dwell. My throne on a pillar of crowd. Well, who could say that but? the Holy Spirit. You know, no human being could fulfill all of that. The vault of heaven I compassed alone through the depths uh, a deep abyss I wandered over waves of the sea over all the land over every people and nation I held sway. Again, who could say that except for the Holy Spirit? Among all all these I sought a resting place, in whose inheritance should I abide? When the creator of all gave me his command, and he who formed me chose the spot for my tent, saying, In Jacob make your dwelling, in Israel your inheritance. Again, the Holy Spirit. Before all ages in the beginning he created me. But you see, the Holy Spirit as well as Christ in the second person of the Blessed Trinity were created, were not created. They were always, they were always, they are always and always will be. So, but the writer here, in presenting this, had to say it in this way, otherwise we could never understand it. You can't write in some mystical language that we don't know. So he puts it in earthly terms and talking about creation. But you have to kind of bend a little on that one. All right. Then I'm repeating a little bit here. Then the creator of all gave me his command, and he who formed me chose the spot for my tent, Say, and that of course is Jerusalem, saying, In Jacob make your dwelling, in Israel your inheritance, before all ages. In the beginning he created me. Oh, that's the pearly music coming from heaven. And through all ages I shall not cease to be. In other words, he always was and always will be. In the holy tent I ministered before him. And in Zion I fixed my abode. (coughs) Thus in the chosen city he has given me rest. In Jerusalem is my domain. I have struck root among the glorious people. In the portion of the Lord, his heritage. Like a cedar on Lebanon, I am raised aloft. Like a cypress on Mount Hermon. Like a palm tree in In Ingedy or whatever this is. Like a rose bush in Jericho. Like a fair olive in the field. Like a a plain tree growing beside the water like cinnamon or fragrant balm or precious myrrh. I gave forth perfume. <clears throat> uh, I, don't, I don't know what these are. I'm going to skip that because I have no idea what how to pronounce that. I spread out my branches like a terebinth. My branches so bright and so graceful. Terebinth is a tree that grows in that area. Uh, I bud forth delight like the vine. My blossoms become fruit, fair and rich. Come to me, all you that yearn for me, and be filled with my fruits. That's like Christ saying in one of the Gospels, come to me, all you who are labor and burden, and I will refresh you. Same thing. You will remember as sweeter than honey. Better to have than the honeycomb. He who eats of me will still hunger because he wants more. Uh, He who drinks of me will thirst for more. Uh, It's not that he will be satisfied, as Christ said, of his body and blood. He who eats my flesh will never uh, long for food. He who drinks my blood, will never thirst again. uh, That has a different meaning. He who obeys me will not be put to shame, and he who serves me will never fail. All All this is true of the book of the Most High's Covenant. Okay. Now, up through, uh, almost from the beginning, through chapter 21, it is Lady Wisdom who is speaking. At 22, it changes and goes back to the voice of the author. So you've got to be a little careful there. It says, All this is true of the book of the Most High's covenant, the law which Moses commanded us as an inheritance for the community of Jacob. It overflows like the fishon, with wisdom, like the Tigris in the days of the new fruits. It runs over like the Euphrates with understanding, like the Jordan at harvest time. In other words, he's talking about the abundance of wisdom that overflows all other concepts. It sparkles like the Nile Nile, Nile, with knowledge, like the Gihon, which is the old name for Nile, at vintage time, the first man never finished comprehending wisdom, nor will the last succeed in fathoming her. For deeper than the sea are her thoughts, her counsels than the great abyss. See, who could fit that description? No human being. It has to be the Holy Spirit. Now I, like a rivulet from her stream, channeling the waters into a garden, said to myself, I will water my plants. My flower bed I will drench. In other words, he's talking about people, his followers. And suddenly this rivulet of mine became a river. Then this stream of mine, a sea. That is the same uh, kind of uh, imaginary preaching that Jeremiah did in his book. This do I send my teaching forth, shining like the dawn to become known afar. Thus do I pour out instruction like prophecy and bestow it on generations to come. the whole idea of Lady Wisdom is confusing and yet at the same time it is very beautiful. Uh, we'll sort of read more of that but I want you to get uh, kind of comfortable in reading it that way because it is important that you understand how this reader can sort of depart from himself and bring in the voice of uh, what we call Lady Wisdom, for lack of a better term, uh, and then return to his own voice. Uh, that's if you don't understand it that way, it can be very confusing. All right. By summarizing these chapters into main categories, I think it can help you better understand what he's saying. Indeed, and I agree that. He's covering an awful lot of detail, but he's presenting it in a way that can be admirable, that can be comforting when we think of how we can honor Christ himself or honor God or honor the Holy Spirit. Because many of these things uh, sort of are attributes of one or more of the persons of the Trinity. Anybody have any questions? No questions? Yes. When you say Lady Wisdom, is that synonymous to the Holy Spirit? Yes. That's the way I I look at it. Yeah. You see, obviously, these people had no idea of a Holy Spirit. They would call God uh, the divine spirit, but it was a singular meaning, because the people prior to the time of Christ had no concept or understanding of a Holy Spirit or Christ Himself. The whole the Trinity, the whole idea of the Trinity was non existent prior to Christ. So the only way they could put this was to give it a separate voice uh, apart from God. Does that make sense to the rest of you? Uh, The whole idea of, you see, Jesus in many ways did not bring a lot of new things into teaching. Most of his uh, his teachings were based on the commandments and an interpretation of them. The one thing that he, or the two things that I can think of, the most important things that he introduced was the concept of the Trinity and the idea of the Holy Spirit as part of that and as himself equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit equal to him, and the three of them being one God. I think I may have told you one time, my sister called me, and she was just really indignant. She said, that priest of ours, he just said that that Jesus, no, I forgot exactly how she worded it, but that the Father was on the cross with Christ, And she said, how could that possibly be? There was only uh, one up there. And I said, well, calm down a little bit. How about uh, the fact that there's only one God? And God himself is being offered to God for our salvation. So if there's only one God, that implies that the Holy Spirit and the Father were on the cross at the same time. Only Jesus was visible, because he is the only one that had a human existence. But that means they were all together on that cross. Oh, well, all right. Maybe. It took her a while to accept that, but... Uh, but that is true. Anybody have a problem with that? Because whatever Jesus says or does is also part of what the Father would say or the Holy Spirit would say and do under the same circumstances. That's why I give you, whenever we start a new class, I always give you a copy of that circular Um, diagram you've all seen it I'm sure many of you have seen it several times Uh, but that's okay offhand I can't find my copy even though I would like to huh thank you no 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 No, the the other one Yeah. Yes, that one there. Yeah. That is, yes, this one here. You all have copies, and some of you have multiple copies. That's all right. The idea of the circle is to show that there's one circle, but each of the persons of the Blessed Trinity have a part of this. This is a diagram illustrating. God's plan of salvation and each of the persons of the Trinity have a very important part to play in this total plan of salvation but wherever one is the other is also there backing and supporting the one that is acting in other words the father is the father of creation and establishing the Jewish nation to be a a spokesperson or a, a format, a vehicle through whom he would bring his teachings into all mankind. That didn't work out because the Jewish people decided that they wanted to be an exclusive community. But nevertheless, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there but that wasn't the time for the Holy Spirit or the, the Son of God uh, to be acting. That came for the next part. After the Father's work was completed, as far as mankind was concerned, he then turned it over to the Son. And the Son then fulfilled the obligation of uh, recompense and reconciliation with the Father through his own death uh, and resurrection. And then, the benefits of what the Father did and what the Son did were then given to the Holy Spirit to help mankind understand all of that, partake of it, and be returned to the Father. So, this is one plan shared by and fulfilled by the three divine persons of God. Thank you, Hernan. But where does Lady Wisdom come in? Well, the people of the writer's time here, Sirach's time, first and second century B.C., had no understanding of that Trinity or Trinitarian concept. And therefore the idea was probably planted in the mind and the head and the belief of this writer. And the only way he could express it without offending the culture of his time by calling this, you know, God part two or something like that, uh, he calls it. Lady Wisdom. All right. That phrase is actually used in the, in the Book of Wisdom. Okay. But I think what it is, is he's trying to get the people ready for the idea of the coming of Christ, just as um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 gets uh, the people ready for the coming of Christ himself. And in Psalm 22, you have another of that prefiguring idea of who Christ is and how he relates to mankind, even in pre-Christian times. Sometimes I get a little carried away, I know that. Okay. Uh, I think it's, it's helpful for understanding some of this Uh, because I I think this book of Sirach is beautiful, but you've got to be a little careful. There's nothing wrong with saying that this has now changed. You know, certain aspects of this book has now been changed by Christ himself. And not that Sirach was wrong, but the development of who God is and the love of God has now uh, been extended into the Christian era and become a more personal thing. The love of God never was preached or taught or properly even thought about in pre Christian times as something coming directly from God to an individual. The whole idea of God doing something for me as an individual in that time period was totally non-existent. Now they would go to temple and pray, but it was more like they were making a a pledge or a, a petition, you know, to like Queen Elizabeth, uh, somebody who is good and and loving for her people, but there is no personal relationship between Queen Elizabeth and all of her subjects. Uh, and those people accept that. And the only, you see, the only background that the Jewish people had was the Pharaoh in Egypt. And his people knew that he had power, and he was, capable of doing many things, uh, even putting people to death if he didn't like them, etc. Uh, but he wasn't there to help each individual. And so the whole idea of love being an individual thing between God and a person was non-existent in the Jewish pre-Christian era. And even afterwards, Unfortunately, they didn't accept that uh, be, per, pretty much because of the Trinity was too much for them to accept. Their most common prayer, like our glory be to the Father and to the Son, etc., their most common prayer is called the Shema, and it starts out as our God is one, and that is the way they look at it. It is still the pre-Christian concept of who God is. One. And they refused to accept the idea of who Christ was. Even though they were looking for a Messiah, their objective in looking for that Messiah was to route them from the Romans. Never in their mind did they think of the Messiah as being God himself coming down here for a totally different reason had nothing to do with routing the Romans it was totally spiritual this idea of spirituality really did not develop until the Christian era so we have a lot of things to go forward (coughs) For next week, I would like to take the second part, or the second half, of the book of Sirach. And, I'm sorry? Oh, alright. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll read the rest of Sirach, so that you can better understand what he's saying in concept. But then, when you're finished, you know, next week we'll do this, but, when you're finished with this book, don't just set it aside and forget about it. It is something that you should give kind of thought to because it does touch on virtually every aspect of our existence. And there's something good to say about all of it. And I think it's a beautiful book in itself, but you got to be a little careful about How did the Jewish people look at it at one time? How do Christians now look at it at a different time period? That's to be understood. You have some of that in the Book of Wisdom as well. The Book of Wisdom has a similar background uh, to Sirach in that it was written in uh, a Greek atmosphere. It was written in Greek and it was never accepted By the Palestinian Jews, that is the Jews in Israel, Uh, partly because it was written in Greek, partly because it was written much later after they sort of closed the gates on what was going to be in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Uh, But the Book of Wisdom, I think, is probably the most beautiful of all of these seven books that we call the Wisdom Books. It has a lot to say, particularly about Lady Wisdom. And think of it there as the Holy Spirit. Okay. Any questions? Alrighty, then let's end with a prayer. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward trying to understand what it is that you want us to understand and hear in the study of these books of wisdom. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to really hear what you want us to hear, not necessarily what is said up here. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.